So last week we discussed, does evil prove that God does not exist? And this is known as the logical problem of evil. Uh, and Casey, I don't think, were you in the Zoom last week? Okay. Um, so in that case, we should all be on roughly the same page that the logical problem of evil is, is appreciated by philosophers as having been thoroughly addressed and, and solved. Uh, simply because claiming that there's a logical contradiction is such a strong claim that it's relatively easily diffused. So this week we're going to be discussing, does evil suggest that God does not exist? There might have been other ways to phrase that, like, uh, is evil good evidence that God does not exist? Or is it likely that God exists given the existence of evil? Um, so those are kind of a few different ways to think about the same question. This right here is our belief map, which we use to kind of organize the topics we cover in Rational Christi. Uh, and last week we were in this corner, responses to arguments for atheism. Um, and we're in the same corner, but some of the solutions to the problem of evil that we'll be talking about tonight have uniquely Christian um, ideas in them. And so by extension, they are defending specifically Christi Christian theism, Christian belief, from the problem of evil. Uh, so, of course, we're, we're kind of straddling the line here. Uh, and then here is kind of the structure of classical apologetics that we've been following this semester, which we've started with arguments for God from natural theology. Now we're responding to the major objection, which is the problem of evil. And after... Um, the break, we will start talking about the resurrection. Um, now, some people might object that we aren't really discussing the wider array of objections to theism, um, but so there, there are a good number of varied objections to Christianity, and a lot of them are based in the biblical text. We tackled a whole host of them last semester when we were discussing objections to the contents of the Old Testament or just delving into the New Testament. Um, but as far as objections to theism, the main big ones are the problem of evil, the problem of divine hiddenness, which is kind of just an extension of the problem of evil, and a lot of the strategies and ideas that we're going to be discussing here tonight uh, can be applied to both problems. Uh, and if you're not satisfied, then you can listen to Dr. Micah's Green, Dr. Micah Green's previous talk on this subject, on the subject of divine hiddenness. So we're going to go straight into the new formulation of the problem of evil. Then we're going to discuss one of our main options as far as dealing with the problem of evil, which is skeptical theism. And then we're going to move on to the project of theodicy, which is a bit more active and positive than skeptical theism. Uh, the free will defense is widely regarded as having succeeded, and so a new problem of evil is required in order for the problem to continue. So, uh, once again, Alvin is going to, he's going to modify his objection from last week. He's going to say something along the lines of, a good God could not possibly allow the amount and types of evil we see in the world. Consider a fawn being trapped by a forest fire and burnt alive, babies who die of horrible diseases, and the Holocaust. And then Carol responds, as she did last week, 
which we, we told her not to, but clearly she wasn't listening. I'm sorry you are experiencing what, whatever evil in your life that you're facing right now, but if you have faith in Christ, he will be your comfort and aid. That might be true and useful in some circumstances to bring up um, in, a, in a pastoral setting. If a pastor is talking to people within his church, that might be very valuable, a very valuable thing that they need to hear. But that is not what Alvin has brought to the table. We are, even though we are dealing with more specific instances of evil, um, and those instances are likely to evoke strong emotions when we think about them, we're still dealing with an intellectual problem. So it's, it's more important, I'd say, this week than last week to make sure we distinguish between an existential problem of evil and an intellectual one. And then uh, William Rowe, I think, it has the more famous formulation of the probabilistic or evidential problem of evil. There exist instances of intense suffering that God could have prevented without thereby losing some greater good. That's premise one. Premise two, God would prevent the occurrence of any intense suffering he could unless he could not do so without thereby losing some greater good. Uh, and three, so God does not exist. Now that may sound like a deductive structure, and it is, but the first premise is generally argued in a probabilistic manner. So can't necessarily account for every single instance of possible evil, but when you consider all of the evil, it seems unlikely that there is an account for each one of those instances. Uh, Paul Draper has another formulation of the problem of evil. So if hypothesis one is theism, and hypothesis two is that neither the nature nor the condition of sentient beings on earth is the result of benevolent or malevolent actions performed by non-human persons. Sorry, I didn't read that right. But this is the indifference hypothesis, the idea that the universe is merely indifferent to sentient beings. So even though we experience pleasure and pain, uh, pleasure and pain, that's not to be, we also experience planes. Um, that's not necessarily be, to be interpreted as um, evidence of anything other than indifference. Uh, the evidence that both theories are trying to account for is the suffering and flourishing of sentient creatures. And the background information, according to uh, Paul Draper, is the biological origin and function of pleasure and pain. Can I control this with arrows? I can, okay. So I'm sure you all recognize our old friend Bayes' theorem uh, from our fine-tuning discussion, and we will not be getting too far into the weeds regarding Bayes' theorem because, as uh, we discovered um, in our fine-tuning discussion, it is profitable but rather confusing sometimes, uh, and it certainly will not be particularly helpful for us to try and assign numerical values to things in this, uh, in, in, in this discussion. Though I should note, on the, uh, on the note of numerical values and units, if you will, uh, a common unit of evil or unit of suffering is referred to as a TURP, T-U-R-P. I think I put that somewhere in my slides, but if I didn't, I found that to be a rather amusing fact, so I thought I would make sure, I, make sure I brought it up in case I forgot to include it later. So 
the two theories these are these two hypotheses, H1 and H2. The evidence is, of course, suffering and flourishing, and the background information is the, um, I, let's say, the naturalistic explanation of pleasure and pain. And the question is, which one's more probable? Which, which explanation is better based off of probabilities? Like I said, we won't be delving into the numbers, but that's another way to formulate the problem of evil in a probabilistic manner. The main resource that I utilized while writing this presentation uh, was the evidential argument from evil, or Phil, depending on how you read it. The evidential argument from Phil uh, is just a series of essays and papers, very influential essays and papers written on this subject. And it includes writings from Alvin Plantinga, William Rowe, Paul Draper, Richard Swinbur Swinburne, Eleanor Stump, who I feel the need to name drop for any Catholics who are listening, um, and a handful of others. And one thing I want to emphasize is that this problem is not just felt from a philosophical standpoint, but also as you're reading the Bible, you will find utterances of this problem of saying, there, there seems to be unexplained evil that either exists or that I'm dealing with right now, whether it's um, the nation of Israel is in terrible trouble at the moment and that is causing me a lot of suffering, that you'll read that in a lot of the prophets, or whether it's famously the book of Job. And Job says, make me know my transgression and my sin. Why dost thou, oh, did I use the NIV? Uh, <laughs> Why dost thou hide thy face and count me as thy enemy? Um, interesting. Um, and Job is looking for an explanation for the evil that he is experiencing. Um, and he immediately turns to the idea that he's being punished. That seems to him to be the most rational explanation. Um, but that is not the explanation that the book of Job affirms. In fact, it explicitly states that Job was blameless at the beginning of the book and an, an excellent service servant of God. So all of that is just the formulation of the problem. Does anybody have any, ah, you got here at the perfect moment. Uh, to summarize, the probabilistic problem of evil picks up where the logical problem of evil um, left off which is saying, even though there's not a logical contradiction between God and evil, there is a probabilistic problem between God and evil, and that the amount of evil that we see in the world is so much that God and theism seems to be a poor explanation for it. Um, so does anybody have any questions about the formulation of the problem before we move on to how we might address it? All right. So, wait, real quick, what, um, what, what sort of examples, so, I mean, you've been kind of vague that basically that there's something about the evil in the world that, I mean, is it that the evil is gratuitous in some way, that, like, there is no commensurate good that comes from it, or is it that there should be, like, it should have been possible for God to avoid that evil? Or, like, is it just that it's really bad and we really don't like it? Like, what is the, 
like precisely what is the argument? Yeah. So going back to the free will defense, Plantinga's general, generalized structure is that in spite of the evil we observe in the universe, it is logically possible that God has some morally sufficient reason for allowing that evil. And um, those morally sufficient reasons tend to take the form of saying God can't have X without Y, or God can't have this good without this evil. The, the good that God wanted to establish in the universe entails the existence of some evil or some type of evil. So, for example, the existence of free will creatures possibly entails, um, I dare say likely entails, the uh, misuse of that freedom and the misbehavior of those creatures. Uh, and so any, and so that would explain the instances of evil we see perpetrated by those free will creatures. Now, what Roe here would say is that, number one, so God, whenever he is actualizing a world, whenever he's creating a world, he can see everything that will happen in that world. He can see um, what those creatures will choose. Uh, and theists, one way or another, roundabout, uh, agree with that, that God doesn't create a world um, that he doesn't know what's going to happen. The, the alternative expression is open theism, which is God does create a world and he doesn't know what's going to happen whenever he creates it. But uh, at Russia Christie, we generally defend uh, a more conservative position. So he creates the world, he knows what's going to happen, and the things he saw in this world should have made him reconsider allowing us to have free will is one option. Or you could say that the free will defense doesn't explain natural evil, which is evil that doesn't originate from the decisions of any free will creatures. So those two objections to something like uh, the free will defense um, are, are what Roe is putting forward. And ultimately, they're, they're primarily analyzable. They're primarily scrutable from a probabilistic standpoint. It seems unlikely that God would say free will is so valuable that he would allow, end up allowing something like the Holocaust or um, free will simply doesn't account or it is unlikely that demons or some other supernatural entity is responsible for things like earthquakes. Uh, so both of those are, are probabilistic expressions. Um, that, that I think Roe would be able to derive from the uh, objection. So, essentially, like, establishing a bare possibility is, is fine, so you've gotten rid of this first problem, but uh, showing that there's not a logical contradiction between the two doesn't really solve it. Like, it's not logically impossible that, say, 9-11 was an inside job, but that doesn't <laughs> make it a probable Right? Yeah, and if you put anybody on trial for murder or yeah. any other crime, for example, stealing a catalytic converter by any chance, oh, yeah. um, if you put somebody on trial for that crime, you can come up with a logically possible string of possibilities that, it, it, uh, that excuse them of that crime because 
quite simply put, it's not logically necessary, their actions in that theft or that murder or whatever they're on trial for are contingent. Um, and so you can come up with any possible explanation that uh, proves that they didn't necessarily uh, do the crime. You know, the way, the way I read it, honestly, is just that uh, all, all this is doing is, uh, is much, much ado about nothing, I, I think. Because I think just about any good argument that you have is probably not going to be a deductive knockdown proof. So yeah. I, I think really it's just, it's just the, the non-theist here is sort of kind of admitting what everyone sort of knows. Look, God and evil don't seem to jive very well together. Maybe they're not impossible, but it seems like they don't jive. So maybe there's probabilistic tension there. Yeah, and I would kind of compare it to the incoherence of theism where philosophers can say something like, oh, there's a logical contradiction between God and evil or oh, there, or theism is an incoherent set of beliefs, but at the end of the day, you're still going to have billions of theists. Uh, the, whatever the philosophers are saying is, is not being, is not convincing. Yeah, the, the, the true non-trivial logical contradiction is like a white whale that can never be caught. Yeah, and that's why I want to bring up the book of Job, because um, the probabilistic problem of evil, or, or just, uh, there's a more powerful problem of evil that is felt by theists um, and atheists and is even echoed in the Bible. So this is not something that theists can just brush aside. Or can they? <laughs> uh, so skeptical theism is kind of the first range of responses that we have to the probabilistic problem of evil. Um, and it's kind of built into the idea of probabilities and evidence because whenever you're dealing with probabilities and evidence, you have to evaluate them. You have to determine their significance through external means. They don't speak for themselves. Um, so first off, that I kind of skipped ahead, the theist's first available option as far as dealing with the evidence the, the good evidence against God that is evil is saying, yeah, it is good evidence, but we can s simply take into account the other evidence. If you're comparing two murder suspects, then you probably want to go with the one you have better evidence overall for. Um, and the theist would just say the, the weight of the evidence, the balance of the evidence lies in favor of theism. And this is Zach brought this up explicitly while he was discussing the fine-tuning problem, which is it's possible that you can carry on with this conversation simply having fine-tuning and the problem of evil cancel each other out. Uh, and that, that's a very simplistic way around this problem. And obviously, if somebody isn't convinced by, for example, the moral argument or the, pro the fine-tuning argument, then... Sorry, somebody's entered our waiting room. Uh, if somebody's unconvinced by those arguments, and then you try and say, oh, they just cancel out, then they're not going to be convinced. Uh, so then the theist can say, um, we are not in an epistemic position to evaluate evil. Well, I think I missed something there. So what, what was that first position there? It was just saying that you can say it, it is evidence, but it's not decisive evidence? 
Yeah, it's it's not it's not uh, um, it is evidence, but it isn't decisive. It doesn't tip the scales, if you will. That might not be how you think about how you form your beliefs as far as weighing evidence, um, but well, it's an analogy. On board. You, know, you take all of my arguments on board, I will take all of your arguments on board, and then whichever way it, it weighs out. Yes. Um, and if the theist di didn't have anything, then even a slight amount of good evidence would be a problem for the theist. Um, and the lack of any positive evidence would be a serious problem for the theist. But the fact that we do have these strong arguments that are um, that a lot of people take really seriously, like the cosmological argument and the argument from fine-tuning and the way that Dr. Julie Miller formulated the moral problem as an abductive problem, where she said God is the best explanation. That's kind of a probabilistic statement um, or an evidential statement. Uh, and it just evaluates to um, the evidence is better for theism, or a theist could say that, or uh, a theist and an atheist could just agree to discard uh, something from both sides. So, uh, one of Rowe's main ideas, one of his main premises, is that there exist evils without countervailing goods or counterbalancing goods. So an evil that God could have gotten rid of without losing some greater good. Um, for example, can God get rid of the actions of free creatures without getting rid of free will? No, he can't, logically speaking. Um, that, that's logically contradictory in the terms. But can God, can God get rid of fawns dying in forest fires uh, without losing free will? Well, yes, he can. Um, so either the theist needs more uh, other goods that are preserved um, while that entail the evil, or Rowe's argument is successful. Um, but this is from Planiga responding to Rowe's argument. He says, to maintain this position here, the sort of theologian we are considering, the sort of Sorry, the sort of a-theologian, I'm not sure what happened to the a, the sort of a-theologian we are considering would have to hold that it is just apparent that there is no such outweighing good. So in order for Rowe's argument to succeed, he has to say, well, obviously there's no out, outweighing good. Um, but is there really any situation where we can truly say that that's obvious? Um, and this idea is the idea of skeptical theism, to where if we apply an ordinary level of skepticism, then we can um, preserve our beliefs in things like science and philosophy, that the, the, in order to give us the premises for things like the cosmological argument, but we discard, more or less, or we don't seriously consider statements like there exist pointless evils because um, our skepticism just says we, we don't have enough 
information to evaluate that. And I, it, it is kind of key to point out. Um, that's the same thing as what you were saying earlier with uh, admitting it's good evidence? No. Um, Yes, this is, this is probably, I'd say, yeah, I put them all under skeptical theism because I only had one slide about accepting evil as evidence. Um, so I put it in skeptical theism, but that itself is not really a position of the skeptical theist. Um, uh, so using just the ordinary amount of skepticism that we take to everyday life and academic disciplines, we find ourselves saying that we are really not in a position to evaluate whether or not this evil is good evidence. And that starts by saying we can't really evaluate God's reasons. Um, certainly if God tells us he has this specific reason for allowing this evil, uh, then uh, the theist or the Christian, I would say, um, if God is revealing that in the Bible, uh, the Christian can take that seriously. Uh, but the idea that we have access to all of the reasons that God could have for allowing all of the evils that we see and that we might otherwise object to is a massive claim, especially when you're dealing with an entity and an intelligence like God's. Uh, and a, a, an analogy, I'd say, not an analogy, but a similar case I would like to make is if you're trying to impact the future, um, it's kind of impossible to determine the level of influence that a seemingly insignificant action that we take now, it's, it's seemingly impossible to evaluate how that will turn out many uh, units of time uh, later. Uh, sort of like a uh, the, the more bodies that you put in a system, even if you know all of the rules that govern that system, the more bodies you put in that system, the more chaotic and unpredictable it becomes. So God might be able to understand something like that, but we are not. And returning to the Sounds like special pleading to me. I'm sorry. So, when it comes to God, so if, if you do something weird and I think it's evil, I can say I think you're evil. But if God does something weird and I think God is evil, now I can't. I can't. Infer, I can't infer that. Why? So first off, I think that it, it. We can. We can consider a situation where somebody does something that is weird and you call them evil, but. Whenever you gain more information, you change your mind. You, you no longer hold that statement. Um, or you see, something, see, see someone acting strangely, and you're like, oh, that person is suspicious. Um, you, you start looking for more information. Um, and, and that's why um, I think you'll, you'll hear people say, you shouldn't judge. I don't think they're saying that unconditionally. I think that they're saying you shouldn't judge because you, you don't have enough information to evaluate this situation properly. And this is especially common in, the, in I'd say, the general project of theodicy and defense is to compare our perspective to the, to the perspective of a child 
complaining about the actions of their parents, which might sound patronizing, but I think is a severe underestim un un underestimation of the gap in intelligence and wisdom between human persons and something like the divine mind. Jeff, I would, an example of making this point be, you see someone push another person, you're like, oh, that was bad, they, that was evil. And, but then you realize later that they're pushing them out of the way of an oncoming train. And so see, it's funny you say that, because whenever you said, oh, a person pushed another person, I immediately started thinking, I can't think of a single reason, can't think of a single situation where that might have been justified. And then you, yeah. Um, which, granted, I'm tired, uh, not thinking. Uh, very strongly today. Uh, but yes, that's a perfect example um, to where the person who took the action had access to better information than you did. Uh, and furthermore, um, let's say you never found out that there was an oncoming train. Um, that wouldn't change the, the fact that that person had access to an adequate justification and was, in fact, justified in that action, regardless of what your perspective on it was. So, go ahead. Okay. Would you not, if you didn't have access to the information about the, uncommon, uh, about the incoming train, would you not then remain justified in the belief that them pushing it was a bad or immoral act because you simply don't have that information and you can't gain access to it? I don't think Lack so. Lack of knowledge isn't justification Wait. for having so, a positive so, belief. Yeah. So, you, the information that you have access to is that this person, that someone ended up shoving another person, right? The information you don't have access to is that they were shoving them out of the way of the incoming train. If you're just a, acknowledging okay, that- So let, let me phrase it like this. You go home, uh, you were on your way home, you finished your walk home, you arrive at home, and you're talking to your roommate, Carlos, and you're like, dude, I saw some dude push an elderly fellow, just completely out of the blue. And then for some reason, I didn't try to intervene in the situation and just continued walking home. Um, <laughs> I was in a hurry. Uh, and then Carlos being perhaps a bit more generous and he, he wasn't immediately involved in the situation. So maybe he has a slightly clearer head. He says, well, maybe that there was some good reason. Um, I, I think it's certainly the case that Carlos is not unjustified for supposing that there was some good reason. And I think that that's kind of where skeptical theism exists, is that gap between justified reasoning. Uh, I, I see what you're saying there. But to kind of, I guess to, to push things a little bit further or to, to make it a little bit more, I think a little bit more applicable to the situation, uh, Another analogy that could be proposed is you and one of your closest friends are walking down the alley and then a person jumps out, stabs your friend, steals their wallet, and runs away, right? And so now your friend is hurt on the ground, possibly dying, and your, one of your other friends comes up and goes, hey, it's okay, there was, your, the thief could have had a really good reason for stealing the guy's, for, for stabbing your friend and stealing his wallet. You would, still be you would still be justified in believing, even if that is a possibility, you would still be very justified in believing that what the thief just did is an unjust act. 
I think that and you're right in saying you know, a, a human thief has done this. Um, but then imagine we have some reason to believe that we thought that this person who we now suspect to be the thief um, to be incredibly virtuous um, and, um, and infinitely more intelligent and wise than we are. Well, I think, I think this is actually a pretty good case here because in the case of like the train and in the case of the, you know, getting stabbed or robbed or something like that, those are things we're familiar with and we're in a position to evaluate if someone may or may not, the likelihood of whether or not someone has a good reason yes. to do something like yeah, that. There's not a significant yeah. epistemic distance between us and those events but, yeah, in, in the way they've been described. So, yeah, to say and yet even in those events, you, it's still quite possible but, that you could be yeah, wrong. But, right. but the, the question is what, like, and the whole point of this is what is the epistemic situation we're in? So like, for, like one of the things we, we discussed at, at one point was, uh, you know, the issue, the, the, the question is, when is absence of evidence, like absence, evidence of absence? Like for example, like here's a, here's a real trivial example. Uh, is it true that there are no elephants in this room? Yes, that, that is true. And why? Because we don't see any elephants, right? Is it true that there, there is are no coronavirus in this room? Well, let's hope that's <laughs> not true. Uh, I was going to fix it. Is it true that there are no ants in this room? There is not a single ant in this room. From where you're sitting, can you, can you adjudicate that? Or a flea, or, or even an even smaller, like, fix it during the ball. Or is there a life? On, or is there life on planet in another galaxy? Well, I, I mean, th th this case is actually really good because we're, the, the, the situation is we're in an epistemic situation right now where we can look at the entire boundary of the room and say, yeah, there aren't any elephants in here. But can we, where we're sitting, look in this room and say, there, there are zero ants in this room? And we might be able to assign so, well, a probability to something like well, that. Maybe, but, but that's what the question is. So uh, the skeptical theist here, he's saying, he's, he's agreed. So the atheist and the skeptical theist, they're saying, yeah, there does, we don't see a reason God would allow this evil. But the question is, when we're looking for God's reason for allowing evil, are we looking for an elephant or are we looking for an a ant? Flea. Yeah. yeah, would we expect or should yeah. we expect to be able to detect the reasons? Um, okay. Oh, did it break? Yes. Okay. Yeah, it should be good. In so, that case, I have... Actually, another question. I can't see the Zoom it. now, so if there are any chat questions or people needed, needing admitting, then. Oh, okay. In, in response to that, I actually have a question that is very, like, I think could be very useful and important here. What would be the difference between us not being able to determine the reasons behind it, because God is infinitely more powerful, and there not being other reasons for it. Well, that so, so that's, that's a really good question there. And, and, it, and it actually gets to the heart of what the skeptical theist is saying. They're not saying that there's something about God that makes him special or anything like that. The, the claim is, well, actually, it's even more than that. The claim, there is gratuitous evil in the world, that quote. That is something that, in principle, can't be known by a human. The same way, like the, the claim... There is life on a planet that is 15 billion light years away from us. That claim is, in principle, unknowable because we can't see past 15 billion light years. We don't even know if there's anything past. Now, I see so that the audio is gone on the Zoom. So. 
I must have jumped out for a minute. Skeptical theist is not saying that there's something about God. They're just saying, in order to make the claim, all evil in the world is gratuitous, you would literally have to know, like, the entire history of the world and the causal chain involving every action of evil, which is something that you're just, no human is in a position to evaluate. I do think that whenever you put God into the equation, it becomes that much more. Yeah, and that's the thing is that if there were such a reason, only God could know it, or some someone like God. And yeah, right. But the question is still in that case. Let's say that there are two worlds that exist. One of them is the world where all the evil does have a specific purpose, and we just simply can't comprehend it because God exists. And another world exists where there simply is no reason to the purpose of evil. Like, there is not a, there is not a better reason for it. Yeah, exactly. How could we determine yeah, the it, difference between those two worlds? Yeah. No, I, that is the skeptical theist claim. They're saying there, there is no difference. You, you, so, you can't assign a probability either way because both of those are they're They're equally probable. Both and equally unknowable. And so the, what isn't the atheist saying that we live in a world. So, we live in a world where we can discern so, that it's more like we li- that we live I in the world where there is no justifying reason and there is no God. See, I think the difference is in one of those worlds, there has to be the extra assumption that both a God does exist and that He has this explanation for evil, and then the the. So the, the world, it's not it's not appropriate. It's not appropriate to refer. It's not appropriate to refer to the existence of God as an assumption when we're dealing with the problem of evil. Yeah, we're asking. So, the, the point is, this is not an argument for the existence of God. So this is yeah exactly right. right. That yes, one if if you're looking at these two situations, one posits God, one does not. But that's irrelevant because the question is, does God does ex- the yeah. evidence show God as more or less promised? Yeah. So using the fact that God is an extra entity against it, that, yeah. I mean, that's a different argument. And what the, the structure of the argument I, is you usually assume the existence of God, and you try to work your way backwards to a contradiction or an improbability. So I think the, okay, so I think the point that I'm trying to make is we have gotten to, we've gotten here where we, or based on this, we can't evaluate the likelihood or the, we cannot determine whether or not any gratuitous evil exists. We don't have that ability to determine it. And so then the question becomes, or then, and at that point then, if we've gotten to the point of where the two ideas that we have, or the two things that we're trying to figure out which is more likely. You would say that the instance with God is more metaphysically extravagant, for instance, or yeah. something? Yeah. And so well, in that case, that would make it more likely so that's that where the one without God would, make more, would be more likely. Well, so we're going to move on from yeah, that. Yeah, off of that point. That, that is the skeptical theist argument. The existence of God does not make the existence of evil more or less likely. Yes. Conversely, which is probabilistically equivalent to saying the existence of evil does not make the existence of God. Which then other arguments will factor into the claims about metaphysical extravagance. You're you're just looking at the one data point of evil in the world, and the skeptical theist is saying it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not evidential. It's, It's a phenomenon, but it doesn't make the probability of theism more likely or less likely. 
So I think the we're going to have to move on after yeah, after you, you say what you on. say. Go ahead. Uh, no, you go ahead, okay. and then we'll so, just move on. So the the data point that we're looking at, which is the existence of evil, we are attempting to determine whether this data point is more likely to exist in a world that a god exists in and has good reason for it, or a world where, or, or sorry, we're trying to determine the likelihood of, I think I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna need a, yeah, 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 yeah. Let's, let's go ahead and do yeah. that so I can. Good objections uh, will be thought about and uh, people will come up with new and better objections and we'll continue to talk about them in our Problem of Evil Slack channel, so. Do I still have control? I do, okay. Uh, so I would like to point out that I think some degree of this skeptical theism is biblically justified, is, is um, endorsed, let's say, by the book of Job, chapter 38, uh, when God challenges Job and says, have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Um, so the, well, once again, it seems to be a statement that Job's epistemic position is inadequate to understand the significance or um, reasoning behind the suffering he's currently experiencing, which I will point out, we, we are kind of dealing with both the emotional problem and the intellectual problem kind of simultaneously there, so we want to be careful to try and keep uh, a stark description. This is only to point out for the Christian theists in the room that I, I do think that this is a biblically acceptable response. So, I'd say we've made some progress. We're on the third part of our roadmap, and we didn't even discuss any history. If we end this meeting and we still have 20 minutes left, then we'll have to discuss the history next time. <laughs> uh, and this is where we actually start to challenge the claim. So first, we, we only had one slide devoted to this, but first we said, let's accept the idea that evil is good evidence for God. And then we challenged that claim. And we said, let's think about whether evil is good evidence for anything. And now we're going to challenge that claim even further and say that we have good reasons as theists. These, that, I want to point out something Zach kind of touched on this, but I want to spell it out a bit more explicitly. Um, these are not reasons that we're trying to convince somebody to not be an atheist. Um, for, for something like that, we would presumably say, hey, the cosmological argument is pretty strong and indicates the existence of God. This is just for saying uh, Christian theism or theism in general is rationally justified. Um, so we're, we're, by accounting for the evil that we're observing in the world and saying once we've accounted for it, then we know for certain that it is no longer to be considered good evidence. 
So we're delving into theodicies, which in contrast to last week, I, I spelled out this distinction last week, but it's worth iterating again. A defense is just about demonstrating that there is no logical contradiction between the coexistence of God and evil. A theodicy is taking on a more ambitious goal of explaining how things actually are. And the first theodicy that we're going to examine is the free will theodicy. I know that that sounds a little bit similar to the free will defense, but trust me, it's a, it's a little bit different. In that, it's, uh, it's more difficult to, um, to hold on to. But I think, I think that there are components of the free will defense that are worth holding on to whenever we switch on over to something like the free will theodicy. So first off, we have to continue to maintain that free will is an incredible good to have in this world. And if we're comparing this world to a world of toy soldiers, then this, this world is certainly preferable. Um, we also uh, have to maintain that worlds with free creatures who always choose the good either do not exist, um, which is logically possible. Uh, yes. When you say that worlds with free creatures who always choose the good do not exist, are you meaning to say that those possible, like possible world, there are no possible worlds, or are you just saying that there are possible worlds but they're not actual? That this is saying that there are no possible worlds. Okay, so. And I think that Any this is... Any possible world that had free creatures in it who always choose the good will be undesirable for some other reason. Exactly. I think that the free will theodicy is committed to this stronger premise. Uh, and Once again, a theodicy is generally going to be committed to stronger premises than their um, corresponding defenses. It's just, you take last week, control F, possible control the truth. Yeah. Um, and, and so as Julie pointed out last week, it's possible that the only possible worlds that you know, God was looking at and could actualize that had free creatures who always choose the good, it's possible that they only had three or fewer created beings. Um, so perhaps we can understand that to be undesirable due to uh, sparsity. Scarcity? Sparsity and scarcity. Um, now, as far as, if let, let's say we accept these two premises, how far does this um, theodicy go? Uh, and I would say that it easily covers the, the ideas of punishment, consequences, and discipline. So if I'm experiencing suffering, but it's because uh, the result of free decisions I made, whether I'm being punished or whether I'm simply experiencing the consequences of pulling an all-nighter <laughs> or whether it's because I worked out yesterday and now everything hurts. Um, all of those are, are perfectly explicable on, uh, on this theodicy. So, so you're saying that free will can explain certain things, but you're thinking that natural and incredible evils maybe are not well explained by free will? I think incredible evils and then natural evils, the thing that people generally turn to is, once again, demons and supernatural entities, which, uh, to turn back to the book of Job, which 
I guess is kind of our second resource for tonight, does have uh, some precedent on theism and isn't necessarily excluded by what we know uh, from uh, the science of tectonics and um, weather. Uh, just because it's accounted for in one sense doesn't mean it can't have multiple concurrent explanations. I know that that is kind of, we're going a little bit far out of our depth and especially out of our comfort as um, Western thinkers in, in, in a context that is as academic as a university. But in parts of the world, this, is, this would be very popular and very well so understood. You, so you think it is reasonable to say that all natural evil is the result of demonic power? Personally, no. <laughs> okay. but, um, so I would say that the free will theodicy does not uh, account for natural evils well. And I say that the free will theodicy does not account for incredible evils well. So then we have an alternative. But, uh, and this is kind of what I want to get you to start considering, um, is maybe it's not a complete alternative. Maybe we can simply consider this to be a um, supplement. So the soul-making theodicy. This comes from John Hick, who draws a contrast between the Augustine approach, which he views as defending free will, um, and arguing that free will is the largest component in explaining the evils of this world, and um, the Irenaean, uh, named after the church father Irenaeus, uh, the Irenaean, Irenaean um, school of thought, which uh, I'm going to have to read it. Uh, by allowing us to live in an evolutionary, natural world, that I don't, Irenaeus probably wouldn't have uh, uh, subscribed to a particular or even any view of anything approaching Darwinian evolution. Um, but in, yes, exactly, Hick. Uh, in an evolutionary, natural world which allows us to grow in spirit and mind uh, in the best way to have fellowship with God, um, then that would be. A justified reason. And one of the results of this, so going touch, touching back briefly on the problem of divine hiddenness, um, living in a at least semi-religiously ambiguous world uh, is part of the soul-making process. So once again, I kind of spelled it out explicitly on the last slide, but if we start to consider this one, what sorts of evils does this theodicy explain? And what sorts of evils does this theodicy fail to explain? So, okay, just to, to summarize here, you're saying that basically some evil comes about because of the, just the process of living a natural physical life, and in that process you're what God is cultivating person's souls? I, I would say that living in a world with things like um, natural disasters, which uh, require um, uh, people to react to those situations um, and to help one another, living in a world 
uh, where we understand nature to be regular and so can have intellectual virtues uh, that we take to the sciences and to philosophy um, and having and, and living in a world where in response to other people's evils we can react um, with uh, we can react nobly or with courage um, all of those things are included in this theodicy and and the the most significant good I'd say is the potential to become the kinds of beings who can have relationship with God. So a proper relationship with God. Yeah, it seems a little a little bit uh, unpersuasive to me. Well, to remember, say that we it doesn't have to have this level and type and amount of evil just so that people can build character. I think that the big question is does this succeed in accounting for some of the evil that the free will theodicy failed to account for. I mean, in a sense, so I just made this connection now, maybe this makes no sense. This kind of presupposes the free will decision anyway, right? Because, or the free will... I, I, there is a version that includes it, for sure. Well, well, think about it. If you're a determined creature... Okay, so basically this is saying it's better to grow in character than for God to download the perfect character onto you, more or less, is what this is getting at. And so, but think about it. If you go through the motions of growing your character, but God is determining you to do that, that's, that's actually worse, I think, than that's <laughs> the worst of both worlds. Yeah. So, God uh, has already chosen the character you will have, and he has determined you will go through evil, and he's determined how you will react to that evil. It makes sense. I mean, th th this to me, I think, is really just kind of, it's, it's, a, a, it's like an expansion pack to the free will thing, because think about it. You're using your free will to do what? To, right. respond, to respond to, to the things that I listed as yeah, responding exactly. to. Yeah. So, okay, Here, here's my, one of my issues with this, though. So, Mother Teresa spends most of her life caring for, you know, impoverished, sick people that mostly just die, right? So, because God wanted to create a Mother Teresa. He created a bunch of poor other people that he put through terrible, terrible things so that he could build Mother Teresa's soul. So it's like, you know, he's, he's torturing all these people to build somebody else's... So the, the argument has to say that those people undergoing that... Uh, so that every individual undergoing the suffering in question or the evil in question is might not be the only individual with the opportunity to grow, but is an individual with the opportunity to grow in response to the suffering that they're facing. Yeah, I mean, I was gonna say, if they're coming into contact with Mother Teresa. Yeah, yeah, that's a... God and about charity and, you know, becoming better people themselves through her example. Now, I should say I not mean, every person... Just, just think about it though, Don't, think about it a little bit less logically, right? Mm -hmm. okay. So, you know, we have a... That's Ebola what we stand for here at Rational Christie. Right, an Ebola pandemic, and we're saying that basically the world has to have that Ebola pandemic. Pandemic, like there, there's that's the only way to help people build character. I mean, it's it's like the stereotypical like uh, like not so caring father figure that just tells his children that it builds character. 
So it doesn't have to, the Ebola pandemic, or epidemic, or? Epidemic, not pandemic. Yeah. Pandemic of Ebola would be really bad. Yeah. yeah. In the same way that an epidemic of Ebola was also really bad, but it would be on a larger scale, so worse. Epidemiology 101. That's why we all came here to Rasher Christie, right? Yep. Uh, <laughs> uh, so the the soul making theodicy doesn't have to be doesn't have to make an account that says this evil that we're experiencing right now is um, completely necessary, but saying that it's not pointless. I don't think uh, think that there's a region of non overlap between pointlessness and necess necessity. Well, okay, there's. I think you have to have a certain level of justification for it to be justification, right? Right? Yes. Like, like the, the resulting good has to be commensurate with the level of suffering, right? I mean, that, that seems like a general principle. Yes. I, well, I guess, I guess all, I don't think that you're really objecting to this as much as you're just showing where the limits of this are. So like, exactly. well, I, in, I in think this case, it's, so it, it's a perfect example, right? There's evil in the world, and people like Mother Teresa, or people like the you know the Ebola the Ebola people that sacrifice I mean the, the people that sacrifice their lives treating Ebola, for example, you know that's obviously a very you know that that would fit under a soul making idea. But so much the worse for the people that actually died and didn't get their soul made. Sorry. You know, right. So okay, then this theodicy is not for them. So uh, well, I guess the point yes. is, if, if by theodicy we mean an actual account of the evil in the world, it, it fails. This cannot account for all the evil. Ooh, not all the evil. account for all the evil. In the no, world. Well, of course. Well, I, I think Sam just said that these, these combine. Like, yeah, and I'd say that this, this theodicy combined with the free will theodicy does a better job of explaining something like the Holocaust, even though... Um, they might ultimately both fall slightly short whenever you say, we do have the Holocaust, but on think, balance we I have... using soul building to explain the Holocaust is probably a really unpersuasive argument. Well, I, I think that's I'm not so sure about that because I think many, many people are moved uh, greatly when they read about people like Corey Ten Boom, uh, Corey Ten Boom and Dietrich Bonhoeffer and, and people who acted. Um, sure, but I, I don't think there was too much soul building that happened with the 11 million Jews and gypsies and communists that were burned in gas chambers. Well, the communists didn't have souls, so. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, I mean, just think about it that way. Well, consider the, the, the Jewish people who, um, uh, a, a, a lot of people, a lot of survivors uh, re record having re renewed experiences of, of faith and, and leaning on God and trusting in so God. Have you ever heard of Elie Wiesel? Yes. I think that's how you his name. So you know, he wrote a book called Night where he talks about his experience in the Holocaust. And, and he's not the only one who's made this, made this comment. I don't know if this quote was original with him. But when asked, you know, when he was asked as a, a Jewish person, why, you know, how did God allow the Holocaust? His response is, was just that he must have been busy doing something else. It wasn't that, oh, it was, he, he, he permitted this to happen to, uh, you know, the Jewish people so that we would grow as a people. You wouldn't expect him to. Um, 
I, I think that that would be a bit much to expect somebody who had just gone through something like the Holocaust. Well, I mean, he had decades to reflect on this. And I guess my point is, it's really easy for us to say, oh yeah, clearly the Holocaust was a soul-building opportunity. Uh, I, think, I think that's a shallow response to the horror of that event, though. Well, I, I think the problem here is, I think that the problem in using this theodicy for something like the Holocaust is the same problem as using material models for materials that they weren't designed for. And, and I think that's kind of the claim. It's saying that for normal, everyday evil, not extraneous, extravagant, over-the-top Holocaust evil, but just like everyday evil, that I think this is a perfectly legitimate. And consider the fact that the good we are advocating for is not just generic character building. It is soul, soul building in order to have, in order to be able to have a relationship with God. I mean, I mean, Sam, and that many, good is more appreciable. As. How, how many of these theodicies would you say actually make the claim this theodicy explains every instance of evil ever. I have one example of a theodicy from Planiga that yes, my boy. But that claims. That one. Yeah. That one. Uh, I, don't, I don't think there are any, are there? I, I don't. I don't think so. I think that there are definitely people who claim that their theodicies do cover all of the evil, in the same way that I think it is appropriate to say that Planiga's free will defense does cover all the evil that exists in a defensive manner, but not in a uh, the theodogical, theodicical manner. Um, so I, I think we've demonstrated here that Andrew did not find this one particularly impactful, but I personally find this one to be immensely helpful whenever I'm thinking through the problem. Um, obviously, it might seem presumptuous to apply it to other people, but in the minimal instances of horrific suffering I've undergone in my life, I can't stress enough minimal to the point of being negligible. But whenever I think about this, it, to, to say this suffering could make me the kind of person who could have, who could actually have a relationship with God, that um, does seem to uh, help me account for it. Yeah, I think if you want to apply something like this on a personal individual level... Applying it to others right? may seem presumptuous, but it is intellectually consistent. Emotionally presumptuous, intellectually consistent. Yeah, probably never tell somebody that God allows evil to happen to you because he's... because it makes you stronger. In the same way that... You make you stronger. In the same way that uh, it... I'm, I'm sure... Your parents might say, oh, this builds character, and you'll, you might be tempted to roll your eyes at them because you're like, ugh, that is obviously an inadequate, or that, that, that is not persuasive to me in this situation. It might turn out to be an inadequate explanation, but. So the next theodicy, by popular demand, by popular request, is the connection-building theodicy. Uh, and I'm just going to quote uh, the paper pretty much directly. Um, the basic idea behind this theodicy is that virtuous responses to evil allow for certain types of ongoing, intrinsically valuable connections of appreciation, contribution, and what I call intimacy between personal agents. Because of their ongoing character, arguably the value of these connections will eventually outweigh the disvalue 
of the evils that God must allow in order for them to exist. So this is, this will, I'm glad I put this slide in here because it will help me clarify the soul-making theodicy a little bit. They're, they're very similar. Um, but number one, consider that Christian theism includes an account of an afterlife. So the soul-making that occurs here on earth and the connection-building that occurs here on earth continues to compound in terms of its beneficial results in whatever picture of the afterlife you care to endorse as either a theist or specifically a Christian theist. Um, so that's, that's one clear. Yes? Can you clarify what is meant here by connection? No. I, I, can, I can help on that one. Go, go ahead, Zach. Because I, I read the paper once. So. <laughs> like five years ago. Same here. So, okay, so the classic example that, that Collins gives here, is he saying that relationships that are uh, between two people, in fact, connection, relationship would actually be better. There are certain relationships between people that are better, or that are forged through evil, but in the long run are better. And the classic example is a relationship of forgiveness is perhaps the most valuable relationship that can exist. But there can never be a relationship of forgiveness if there is no wrong that's done in the first place. So in his argument is, if I remember correctly, there were two parts of it. One of them is, if in this life you have a really uh, terrible evil or a terrible wrong done against you, but you're able to reconcile with that person, and then that relationship becomes a relationship of forgiveness that then continues into the afterlife and then compounds and becomes even more valuable, it's actually more valuable in the long run than it would be if you had just a neutral uh, relationship to begin with. And I think the other one he said was something to the effect of, like if you have something like a divine forgiveness, that's an even greater uh, good than, than in the other one. It, it's, got, it's got like a, a kernel of truth to it, but I think there's a lot of like shenanigans involved there. Like if I insult Ada and say, and you know, call her a mean name, just to say, oh, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Like, now our relationship's better because I insulted her and then immediately asked for forgiveness? Like, that doesn't make sense. Then you have to make a further argument that um, the, the, the genuineness of the forgiveness and the genuineness of the initial action are kind of bound together, bound up in the relationship, et cetera, et cetera. Which I, I find it hard to believe that there could possibly be an instance of somebody stealing something intentionally just in order to get forgiveness. That mm-hmm. seems to be taking things to quite an extreme. Yeah, well, I, I guess, honestly, in those examples, the, the forgiveness that we're talking about is actually not a genuine forgiveness. Like, exactly. In, in fact, this, is actually, this actually leads into a, a, a somewhat related question. It's, it's forgiveness like, granted on a mistaken premise. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's, cheap, it's cheap forgiveness that it's not a recognition of a wrong that was done and a true good that was born out of it, um, it, which I think is what Collins is really, really getting to. Yeah. Okay, so any objections to, sorry, what? I was just saying thank you for clarifying. Yeah. Any objections to this theodicy or the last? Especially, and I say objections, but even just pointing out, as I think Andrew did a pretty good job of pointing out, uh, pointing out why you find it to be unsatisfying, in, in what instances of evil 
Do you find it to be unsatisfactory? So, so I actually think this exam, this theodicy, really supplements the, the soul making one. I agree. Pre precisely on the point that Andrew was raising earlier. Consider the, uh, I forget, did Mother Teresa work with lepers? Is that what it was, or was it something else? Just general sick people. Okay. The general sick person and Mother Teresa, when they, under this view, when they quote unquote meet in heaven, will have a relationship that was forged on earth that will then continue and be greater than one if they had never met. All that to say that, Sam, you successfully uh, preempted Robin Collins. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I think that the, I mean, there's a whole slew of more or less identical theodicies like the connection building, the soul making, um, you know, different types of virtue based theodicies, which all, all say the same thing that basically when experiencing evil, there are certain things that can happen that can't happen otherwise, whether that's you know, the soul building thing or talking about developing certain virtues, um, character building, connection building. These are all, there's all these different things. You can even talk about things like just experience and recognition of uh, like appreciation of the good, right? To experience evil gives you greater appreciation of the good. And these are, I think, at an individual level and in particular instances, we can all see how these things can happen. I mean, almost, almost everybody here can think of a time in their life where they went some, through something that was hard, and in the end, it you know, benefited you through your character or, or something like that. I, everybody can think of something like that. The, the challenge is just that because everybody can think of that, it's almost making a it's making an obvious point, right? Sure, we can think of situations where all of these things apply, um, but the broad goal of theodicy is to you know, provide an overall adequate explanation for evil, right? Like that's what theodicy is. And, and that's why I emphasize the idea of having a unifying project of theodicy rather than a bunch of different theodicies. That, that would be my idea, but uh, clearly, Andrew is unsatisfied, so we're going to move on to probably the thing I should have spent a lot more time on up to this point than I have thus far. Uh, to, to give a brief, uh, living in a regular world, that means regular scientific laws. Um, it's kind of covered in the soul-making theodicy, um, but the, the, um, a more particular version that you could look up that is this as a standalone theodicy is uh, made by Peter von Inwagen. In, Inwagen? Uh, so you can look that up. Um, so Felix Kolpa. Up to this point, this one is certainly the most ambitious. <clears throat> and the first question is how valuable are the events of the incarnation and the atonement. Uh, I'm not 100% certain I understand this. Yeah, what maybe describe what those technical like, Okay, fair, fair. So the incarnation is Jesus coming down to earth as a human, taking on flesh, becoming a human. Okay. And the atonement, the atonement. Okay. is through whatever means, by his death on the cross and resurrection, there is now a way for us to have uh, renewed relationships with God. So those two events, uh, if they happened, which of course a Christian theist would assert that they happened, 
seem to be monumental, earth-shaking, and incredibly valuable. So if you compare a world with the Incarnation and the Atonement to a world without one, Planiga asserts that any world with these two events in them are going to be significantly better than any world without them. I guess I would say that, that if there is somehow an inherent value in the Incarnation and Atonement, like specifically this value in those events happening, that is somehow significantly greater than uh, a world that has significantly less evil in it, but doesn't have those events, then I could see that argument, but I'm not certain. So first off, are you convinced that so events can have that sort of value? I'm not convinced that events can have that kind of value. Okay. I'm not certain that an event, I'm not certain that an event happening in and of itself has value. I think maybe we should, we should change the way, way we talk about this a little bit to say something along the lines of, you know, basically the, the thing we're talking about is that in a world like ours, where there is, you know, to, to use more theological language, because this is, this is a theological argument, um, is to say that in a world with ours where there are fallen creatures and, and sin, um, but God enters into the world as a, a person that, who experiences um, what it is to be uh, you know, a, a human person, um, and then you know, so kind of commensurates with us, commiserates with us as humans, and then ultimately is, uh, you know, allows himself to be killed um, in order to... To bring know, about to the justi- redemption yeah, to, of to that creation. People, to, to redeem creation. That this has some kind of... That, that basically, this is the story that God wants to tell, and that the value of that story makes the pain and suffering that it takes to get there worth uh, it. Or, or specifically, uh, makes the evil that exists in the world, um, it accounts for it. Now, regarding, uh, this is an objection I wanted to cover. Uh, whenever you say this is God's preferred narrative, but you still have all of these people suffering, then it seems like God is just either some kind of puppet master or he is, um, or he is, uh, the, the term that was used in the paper is Munchausen, Munchausen by proxy syndrome, where a parent <laughs> will fake their child's illness um, or even cause a child's illness in order to be able to step into that situation and be a good parent. Um, and so uh, if that's true, then even if evil is, is technically accounted for, all of the pain and suffering of individual creatures is not. Um, but I like the way Planiga answers that, which is saying, because Jesus suffered um, and, and, and knew what it was like as a human to suffer, um, 
And the Apostle Paul references the completion of Christ's suffering. Um, there is an idea that uh, the, the, the suffering of the creature is a participation in the redemptive act, uh, or is an opportunity, I should say, I should specify, of participation in the redemptive act of Christ, which participating in something like the atonement or, um, and the grand narrative of God's design for this world is an overwhelming good that does account for that suffering. So the idea then would be the overall narrative of events that have occurred and participating in those events is a good that would outweigh any and all evil that would exist. Or yeah. at the very least that it, it is a, uh, a, sufficient, um, a sufficient good for God to actualize such a world as ours, with the amount of evil that we observe and the incarnation and the atonement. That's, that's the weaker version of Planning's argument. He, think, um, he thinks he can make a stronger one, but basically, given the amount of evil we observe, the incarnation, atonement, and our participation in those events, or our opportunity to participate in those events, is a sufficient justification for the evil we observe. I'm not certain I would accept the idea that the world, this world where evil and atonement, or sorry, evil and suffering exist as a consequence of us being allowed to participate in the narrative and events of incarnation and atonement would necessarily be a better world than one where evil and suffering doesn't exist, or at least doesn't exist to this degree, but the narrative along with incarnation and atonement doesn't exist either. I'm, I'm not certain that... I, yeah, I think, I think it would be unreasonable for the, what would you say, the theodicist? <laughs> it would be unreasonable for them to expect somebody in your position to necessarily be swayed by this. I think this is really an internal argument, right? You're, you're saying that if you accept yeah, th this the is... Christian message, this is a consistent point of view, right? I mean, this basically is the Christian me message that um, you know, this is the most significant event in history and that it, it is very important. Um, it has nearly yeah, measurable right. good I, I think Caleb is associated right with in, it. In, you know, if you're not already in that in the position of accepting and and you know kind of feeling the weight of the theology, I don't I don't think that you can you would necessarily find this to be persuasive. Persuasive, but and, it's, and of course it it's is not supposed to be persuasive. Bottom line, it's 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 a defense, right? I mean, it's uh, the Odyssey, yeah. but, but it's you're giving an argument to defend your position, not try to convince the other the other person. I think this is a consistent argument. And I think that on this view, on this on these collection of views, it's hard to see how the amount of evil that we observe could be unlikely given theism. I think actually the thing that uh, the thing that I like most about this argument, depending on how you format it, 
is that you're taking it, especially if, if you talk about it as a narrative, you're taking it away fr from this idea of trying to balance the scales, right? Because we've already said, if, if, you, if skeptical theism is even a, approximately right, trying right. to mentally balance those scales is impossible. It's an exercise we cannot achieve. And so when you take it away from that and talk about, talk about it in the narratival terms, for me at least, this is a little bit more impactful, and uh, you can think about, you know, the the grand story and, um, you know, the way God is interacting with people and bringing them into that story and redeeming them, and you can see the beauty of that as a whole without having to worry about balancing out the Holocaust. And it's not just God making up the story. It there is. A participatory element. Uh, it was more of just a comment on what he talked about with the skeptical theism, because I've been thinking about it, and the thing that I should I go back to a particular slide? Um. Well, I don't know if that's I don't know if that's quite necessary. Okay. Because the the idea of skeptical theism is that we can't make a judgment on God in the sense that we we can't say that we ha we can't say that there is enough uh, evil in this world to warrant evidence against God because we cannot comprehend God enough to say that there isn't a justification for all the evil. Well, that would be the second part. Right. If, if you can't comprehend oh. uh, evil. The world, yeah, you, can't, you can't comprehend. Like, so, like, hypothetically, skeptical theism could be right and God could still not exist. Like, so, all, all well, I'm saying is you're, you're not in a position to analyze the causal relationships so, of evil. Yeah. So the issue I have with that uh, as I've been thinking about it. If that is the case, then that means we aren't in a position to analyze any aspect of God because we don't have... Because, again, he is omniscient and we can't analyze any and all of his so, actions he could take. So this is something I was careful to specify, mind. but I'm not prepared to argue about, just because I haven't done enough research, okay. is when considering the amount of... Uh, skepticism it requires to reject the uh, evidence that evil is supposed to have pr provided mm -hmm. uh, the the argument kind of stakes its claim on saying that is a sufficient amount of skept that is a that is a, an acceptable amount of skepticism that does not get rid of things like science and philosophy and natural theology so so, uh, Zach? May I make a comment about skepticism? Uh, no. Go ahead. Very quickly. Caleb makes a good point. Skepticism is a universal acid, which means that if you let it get out of the beaker, it will destroy anything that you touch. You have to be very careful with this. is the same problem with the, the skepticism on like the boundaries of uh, uh, constants and quantities in, in, in cosmology. Because mm -hmm. if you let Skepticism, uh, if you say, I'm skeptical about this measurement, for example, and you're not careful, you end up being skeptical about the entirety of science. But if you this really don't example. like skeptical theism... It, but, but this is a very good point, that, that where it, it flips the other way. You say, oh, I'm skeptical about God on this one thing, and poof, now I know nothing about God. That's a very good point, and you've got to be real careful with that. There, there are additional pr premises to be explored about how far does skepticism go... So, that, yeah. That's why I, I, was, uh, I, I made my comment earlier about how the skepticism is based on the question of evil. And it's not, it's not God's not really related to skeptical theism. I hate the name. I, I hate it. Because it, it's not theism. It's now, the, 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 the claim that Zach is making 
is not, uh, I'd say, the common understanding of skeptical theism. No, it's no, a that absolutely is. It's saying no. if there is a reason for evil, only someone like God could know it. It's not, oh, I don't know what God's reasons are. It's this reason is intrinsically unknowable unless you're God. Like the only one who could know. Yeah, basically, God. More, more or less, to, to really not, be able to answer the question, you yeah. have to be omniscient, and we're not. Yeah, in order to answer the question, you have to be omniscient. We're not. So we can't make a judgment on the amount of evil in this world. I'm, I'm, yeah. So let's conclude real quick. Yeah, I, that, that, that is worth delving more into, and we will in the Slack channel. So number one, the probabilistic problem of evil is impactful, but from my perspective, for, for the reasons I gave in the slideshow above, uh, it is ultimately unpersuasive. Uh, it's certainly something that warrants continual thought about, and people are continuing to come up with theodicies for, um, but ultimately it doesn't, um, it doesn't have sufficient persuasive power. Uh, the Project Theodicy is an ongoing one, and with a variety of mutually supportive arguments, it can help theists find some answers to this problem. And finally, uh, for the theist, we can appreciate our own suffering when we view it as a shared redemptive project with Christ. So, that'll be all. Before, before we wrap up, I, I just have a couple I just wrapped up. It's to too make, late. To make about this. So, um, I, this is really important, like the, this final point. And I think with one here, the, the key here is that you may, you may not find this unpersuasive. It's okay if in the end you think that this argument provides a weight against the existence of God, for example. Like, as a Christian, you don't have to have a perfect answer to this. And, and that's okay. We've done a lot of work to diffuse the situation, but you don't have to... You don't have to be able to perfectly answer this. I mean, this is a very difficult argument. Um, and, and we haven't solved it, okay? This, the, the deductive problem may be solved, the inductive is not solved. Um, we've blunted it, maybe, but it's not solved, and that's okay. You don't, you don't have to successfully address every question with certainty, right? Um, and I think the last thing, I, a point here that, um, that I think Sam may be understressed is the, this final point, which is that kind of moving back to the, um, the more emotional side of the problem of evil, in that regardless of the fact that we don't know the reasons for evil existing in the world, it's, I think it's critically important to understand and to, to know that in the end, whatever God's reasons were for allowing evil, he actually came and became human and experienced what it is to be human and, and experienced great evil. So uh, it's not like he doesn't understand, right? It's not like he doesn't know what it's like to be human um, in that way. And it's not like he insulated himself from that, right? So... Um, that's not a theodicy, that's not an answer to the problem of evil, but it is at least, um, it's at least something that you can hold on to, um, you know, for the more emotional or existential problem of evil, that um, you know, God didn't insulate himself from, from the problem of evil.
All right. Thank you all for coming. Uh, I look forward to continued discussions on this topic. Uh, but for now, that will be the end of my contributions for the semester. <laughs>